my diary is a day ahead of me by N.S. Lewis. After the incident, my therapist urged me to keep a diary. The incident occurred last year, and long story short, involved me attempting to burn down the local Catholic church in the middle of the night. The fallout from that adventure was handled discreetly, as such things usually are when you have wealthy parents. But I did not get off scot-free, and had to endure various forms of punishment. Chief among them? Having to keep a goddamn diary. Kate, my therapist, who happened to be my father's chum, had said, Your reluctance to talk about your feelings, I believe, is a large part of why you act out. And since you clearly have trust issues, perhaps we can kill two birds with one stone, as they say, and you can keep a journal where you talk to yourself about what happens every day and how you feel about it. Perhaps once you learn to trust yourself, you can start to trust others. And then you can talk to them, and then you can talk to them about your feelings. All I ever wrote in that diary was a bunch of bullshit that I thought would make my parents who snuck into my room every day to read the thing, satisfied enough to leave me alone. That's all I ever wrote in it anyway. Until the day I met Red, when I recorded that experience with breathless awe, with complete earnestness, and then hid the journal away where nobody could find it. Before I share that first entry, I want to be absolutely clear that I wrote this account after I experienced the events it discusses. I clearly remember sitting in my bed, opening the drawer of my nightstand, withdrawing a pen and the diary, and writing the following. Sunday, October 18th, 2020. Dear Diary, Holy shit! Red, where did he come from? Where has he been hiding my entire life? It doesn't matter, I found him, standing there in Heritage Park in the most ridiculous outfit. Now that I think about it, he didn't have a scrap of red on him anywhere. Every other color, though. A patchwork of all the other colors of the rainbow and many more besides, stitched together as by the world's most deranged grandmother. And his hair, long and thick and black, but no red. My name's Red, he said, as I was walking past him on my way to the coffee shop. I hadn't paid him any mind yet. And at the time, he seemed like just another desperate performer. Same as anyone. What's your name, sweetheart? Fuck off, I said. Fuck off? That sounds Russian. Are you Russian, young lady? I stopped walking and turned to face him. He had deep blue eyes. Nope, I said. I'm American, through and through. But you were Russian, weren't you? Off to the coffee shop, perhaps? I suppose that's rather an American thing to do. Always rushing around. It's all perfectly consistent. It all makes perfect sense. I looked to the ground, where Red had placed a top hat upside down, which had three or four dollar bills inside of it, along with some loose change. Alright, so what's your deal then? You just stand here and do dad jokes? No, that's just how I draw them in. A little buffoonish humor. So what do you do? I asked, deciding that if he didn't give a good enough answer, I'd keep walking. 
Many things, young lady, many things. But for you, for you I will show you things as they truly are, not as people pretend them to be. It's not a talent I used often, but something about you tells me that you're ready to see through the facade. Am I right? I suppose that I was in for a cheap magic trick or something like that, but had to, sadly, admit to myself that this was already the most interesting thing that had happened to me in several weeks. Sure, I said. Good. Now look over yonder. Red swung his multicolored arm out and pointed at a man jogging through the park. There was nothing unusual about the man. He was very fit and attractive, dressed in a tank top that barely contained his bulging muscles, and he was dripping with sweat, listening to music of some kind. Or maybe just an inspirational recording of his own voice saying, You are an incredible specimen. Nothing can stop you. In short, he made my stomach turn. But then most people did that. So? I asked, turning back to Red. Did you really look? Try again. I sighed with disappointment. Don't know what I thought would happen, but looked again at the jogging man. This time, he was quite different. Now he was Simeon, looking for all the world like a giant monkey, with a monkey face and monkey limbs. He was dressed in the same sort of absurd garb that Red was wearing, with tattered bits of blue and yellow and pink flapping around. As he moved along in a waddle, lifting each leg high and bringing it down somewhere off to the side, like a big, awkward crab monkey clown, I laughed, partly out of shock and partly out of delight. How did you do that? I asked. That man is your sidekick, no? And you had a monkey hiding in the bushes that he switched out when I wasn't looking. Not at all, dear. The monkey is the man. I have, as promised, merely shown you things as they really are. Or rather, things as they are beneath the first layer. It's what you've always suspected, isn't it? That the world is full of people pretending to be something they're not. That once you strip the pretense away... People are simply dumb monkeys waddling through life in a comically exaggerated fashion without any real purpose. You can sense that it's true. But the deceit is great enough to trick your very eyes. You see men and women, dressed to the nines, approaching life with a deadly seriousness. And you begin to doubt yourself. Well, doubt yourself no more. You have seen the truth. An eerie feeling passed over me, and for a moment, I believed what he said. But when I looked at the jogging man for the third time, he was only that. A man going on a late morning jog. No, really, how did you do that? Would you like to see even deeper? Yes, I said without hesitation. Then come back tomorrow, same place, same time. I will, I said. Then I remembered that I had school. I was down to my final, final warning and couldn't afford to miss another class. Oh, shit, I can't. Will you be here later in the afternoon? I will certainly try to be. For now, I must move on. Red bent down, scooped the money out of his hat, and stuffed it into an enormous pocket. 
I felt a sudden pang of guilt as I didn't have any cash with which to reward this man for so thoroughly entertaining me. I... I'm sorry, I said. But I don't have any money on me. Just a credit card. I'll bring some tomorrow, I promise. Think nothing of it, young lady, said Red, flipping the hat through the air and catching it expertly on top of his head. I do hope to see you tomorrow. Then he turned and waddled off through the park. I stood there for a long time, full of wonder, trying to figure out how he had done it. In the end, I decided it didn't matter and went ahead to the coffee shop. As I was waiting in line, I began to picture the people around me as clownish monkeys. The same as the jogging man in the park. I had to hold my hand over my mouth to keep from erupting in laughter. Now I am here in bed, and I have not stopped thinking about Red all day. His magic trick was quite possibly the delight of my life. Certainly the best thing that's happened to me in years and years. A splash of colorful paint across a dull and dreary canvas of lifeless grays. I absolutely cannot wait to see him again and discover what else he has in store for me. I truly doubt anything can top what he's already done, but we'll see. Meanwhile, I have no choice but to contain my excitement and wait until after school tomorrow. Unless... Unless I don't. I'll get in trouble, but what does it matter? It's a world full of monkey clowns. What's the worst they can do to me? Throw a pie in my face? And so I concluded my first real diary entry, hiding it inside of an old stuffed bear I found in the back of my closet. Then I settled into bed and tried to go to sleep. My excitement made that difficult, but I also felt a deep and easy peace that I hadn't known for a long time. I had a friend. Somebody who understood the world as I understood it, and was delightfully entertaining as well. And so I finally sunk into sleep, and dreamt of a carnival deep in the wild, primordial swamp where reptiles crawled out of the murky depths and devoured mountains of cotton candy. The next morning I woke up full of energy, Having resolved to ditch class and meet Red at the park, I did not want to miss him and whatever wonderful trick he had in mind to show me. Predictably, my phone started to buzz a few minutes after I was off school grounds, so I switched it off and shoved it in my purse. Then I walked to the park, feeling light and free despite the certain punishment I would face at the end of the day. Red was standing in the same place as before but when I approached him, I saw that he was sad. Now at least, he had some red to him. Though it was where his eyes should have been white, he had obviously been crying. What's wrong? I asked when I was close enough. Oh, sweetheart, I did not expect to see you at this hour, he said, sniffling and wiping his nose with his colorful sleeve. Catherine, I said. My name is Catherine. Why are you crying? Catherine, a wonderful name. Ah, forgive me, my dear. I was only lamenting the fact that I've been robbed. Every hard-earned penny, gone. It wasn't much, but I came by it honestly. Or maybe I didn't. I forget. It doesn't matter one bit, though, now that you're here. I'd come prepared with two $100 bills, pilfered from my father's wallet. He wouldn't miss them. 
I dropped one into Red's hat. This was for yesterday, and I've got another one for today. Assuming you have a new trick for me. You're too kind, Catherine. Too kind. Uh, I'll have to conjure up a good one. But, I'll remind you, they're not tricks. Not tricks at all. I would never trick you, Catherine. The others? Yes, of course. I will dazzle them by pulling a rabbit out of nowhere, or making a ball jump unseen from cup to cup. Cheap illusions. But for you, only the truth. Only things as they really are. One minute now. Hold on. Okay, here comes our jogger. Same one from yesterday. Are you ready? Yes. Then look. I turned my head, expecting to be delighted again. But what I saw shocked me with its grotesquery. The jogging man now appeared not as a comical monkey, but as someone long dead, with rotten flesh sloughing away from the bone and feasted upon by swarms of squirming worms. This alone was enough to make me wretch, but what sent my mind spinning to the edge of madness was the way the thing moved. It wasn't as in the movies, when the dead came back to life and lumber around awkwardly, with crude control over their bodies, but at least some control, and that certainly would have been terrifying enough. The uncanny corpse that I saw now appeared to be moved by several pairs of invisible hands. One set lifting a limp leg in the air here, another giving a shove from behind there, a third holding the body up from under the arms in order to prevent the entire show from collapsing. The effect was of something truly and finally dead, and not somehow reanimated, moving around in the world of the living. Catherine? Asked Red. What's wrong? Are you not delighted? I snapped around with a rush of anger, crashing around a sense of implacable dread. It's awful, I said. Red frowned. My darling, you're going to make me cry again. I thought we shared an affinity for the truth. That's not the truth. I spat, pointing behind me, but unwilling to look in that direction again. But it is, at a more fundamental level. These people you see all around you are nothing but worm food. Temporarily controlled by unseen forces, being moved witlessly from point A to point B until they grow too heavy and bloated to be moved around any longer, and the showrunners find fresher meat. I, I, I thought you would like to see this. Fuck off, I said and I crumpled up the other $100 bill and threw it in his face. Then I walked away, keeping my eyes on the ground and trying not to break down. In my mind, I could still picture the dead jogger being forced to jog along as he decomposed into pure rot. At one point, I looked up to see Red bend down and pick up the wad of money. Fucking fraud, I muttered and went to bring my vision back down to my shoes, but along the way, I caught sight of another dead person. This one looked to be a woman, her clothes stained black and brown with her own fluids, jerking forward down a path in unnatural, floppy fits and starts. Then the stench hit me, 
and I surveyed the park head on and saw that it was filled with the dead going about their mindless business, dozens of them. Heads bouncing on limp necks from side to side or front to back as they were shoved by invisible hands. I ran home as though myself being poked by some unseen prod, and when I swung the door open, I was greeted by my mother, though mercifully she did not appear dead. Kate, she began, in a voice hung between anger and relief. I wrapped my arms around her and started to sob. I'm so sorry, I wailed, about the way I've acted, the way I've been, about everything. Shh, said my mom. Everything's going to be okay. Mommy's here. Mommy's here for you. After a long session with my mom, in which I kept details sparse, I headed up to my room. I was going to spill my guts out to my diary, not just about the awful things that Red had shown me, but about all sorts of things that I now realized were true about myself. In the course of a few hours, I had suddenly shed years' worth of carefully constructed defense mechanisms. I went to the closet, felt around till I found my old teddy bear, and pulled the diary out. I took it over to my bed, where I propped up some pillows and settled in to write my epic confessional. I flipped through the series of lies, lies I had felt so clever in creating, until I got to the previous day's entry, Sunday. The day I met Red. I cringed as I glanced over those words, then hurriedly turned the page. It was already filled in. What the fuck? I lifted the journal up to my face and squinted. It was my own handwriting, my own style too. Dear Diary, today was fucked up. That was exactly how I intended to begin the entry. Absurdly, I turned my eyes to my right hand, as if I would find some kind of answer etched into my palm. I didn't, of course. There was just the usual pattern of creases and whirls. I stared at it for a long time, until it began to look strange, like an alien creature onto itself. Then I snapped out of it, took a deep breath, and read the rest of the entry. It described my day exactly starting with the excitement I had felt in seeing Red again, and ending with me coming up to my room to write it all down. When I had finished reading, I closed the diary, got up, and replaced it in the teddy bear. I tried not to think about it. For the next three days, I was a model citizen. I groveled at the principal's feet in complete earnestness for another chance. I did all my homework and ate all my veggies. I refrained from making sarcastic remarks and even from smoking weed. Seeing those corpses jostled around by invisible masters had shaken me to my core. Suddenly, life seemed worthwhile to me, even if it meant doing all of the things that appeared ridiculous and pointless before. Maybe especially if it meant doing all that. The mundane was a talisman to be wielded against death if only because going through the motions meant avoiding thinking about it all. At the end of the third day of my reformed life, Thursday, I decided to revisit my diary. I had brushed aside the previous incident as a trick of my overstressed mind. I must have written that entry in a daze, and then, when I came back to myself, forgotten all about it. But there was no rationalizing away what came next.
I opened the journal and flipped it to the last entry. It was for Friday, October 23rd, which is to say, the future. It was, again, written in my own hand, in my own voice. It was a long, rambling chapter about how my father had had a heart attack. It had been a non-fatal one, I wrote, but it still fucked me up. I'd visited him in the hospital during mealtime, and he had been eating a fruit cup. But he looked like all those people in the park. Dead, crawling with worms, with some force lifting his dead hand and awkwardly shoving a spoonful of fruit into his mouth. The food fell out directly and slid down his chin in a river of various fluids that had poured out of him. I blinked and he was alive again. I had written at length about how I didn't want my dad to die and how I didn't want anybody to die, and how scared I was. I read all of this in a state of shock, but even by the end of it, it was possible to explain away if I tried hard enough. Red's cheap magic trick had simply gotten too deep in my brain. I was imagining things that hadn't happened, writing things about these imaginings and then forgetting having written them. But when, on Friday, my father had a non-fatal heart attack, and I visited him in the hospital, where he appeared dead to me for a moment, like I said, there was no rationalizing that away. My father returned home on Saturday, and despite him having just come within an inch of death, I do think he was in better shape than me. To put it mildly, I had a lot on my mind. There were the visions of corpses that Red had shown me, which haunted me at random moments throughout the day and in my dreams. Then there was my father's cardiac event, which just drove it home even deeper how fragile and precious everything was. Despite the layers of gristle I had piled up around my psyche to protect me from this realization. Next, of course, there was the fact that my fucking diary was somehow filling itself in a day ahead of time. These added together were bad enough, but there was something else too, on top of it all. It was a feeling in my stomach and my throat, a thought clawing at the back of my mind that what Red had shown me was more real than the reality I saw, and that there were things more real than even that, and that it was all terrible. I would look at a shadow, and it would seem to hold more substance than whatever was casting it, and I sensed that it contained depths that nobody understood or was capable of understanding. I spent the better part of Saturday in my room alone trying to hold it together, but feeling always on the verge of cracking apart into jagged pieces of incoherence. I dug out some pills that I had been prescribed, but declined to take and now swallowed two of them. When those failed to have any effect, I snuck down the hall to my parents' bedroom and rifled through their medicine cabinet until I found something stronger. And if it had all ended there, I think I might have been able, in time, to cope. The pills did their trick and knocked my ass out. I awoke late in the morning on Sunday, still feeling the pleasant haze of the drugs. I felt protected, as if nothing could hurt me. It was then that I decided it would be a good idea to look through my diary again. It can't hurt you, I told myself. 
and now I have been sitting on my bed for hours, trembling, dead sober. Or am I? Is this really happening? It feels as real as anything that's ever happened to me. But has that all been real? I don't know. All I know is when I opened my diary, this is what was waiting for me on the last page. Monday, October 26th, 2020. Dear Kate, I don't think it matters what you do. Red will find you. And when he finds you, I would suggest not trying to escape. Maybe you'll be luckier than I was, but if you're not, you're better off not fighting. He tells me that our suffering is in proportion to how much we struggle against it. He's going to take me now to the church. The same one that I tried to burn down last year. He thinks that's very funny. He says that flames dance everywhere all the time, and that they define the limits of the world. And that once I see them... Once I really see them? He is going to take me past the flames, he says, and show me something more beautiful than I can comprehend. He says that there's nothing to be afraid of. But I'm afraid. I'm really fucking afraid. I am too, Kate. Jesus fucking Christ, I am too. My Girlfriend is a Cannibal by Andy Levy A horrible curse befell my girlfriend, and now she can only eat human meat, and I'm her personal butcher. It all started two years ago, when my girlfriend became very ill and struggled to eat. Anything she would eat would usually come back up a few minutes later. At first, the doctors weren't sure what was wrong with her theorizing it may be a stomach ulcer, but after her health continued to deteriorate, further tests revealed that it wasn't stomach ulcers, but instead, stomach cancer. This news shattered our world. Never in a million years could we have guessed it would be cancer. Elaine was in her mid-twenties, and I know that doesn't make you immune, but it sure makes you feel that way. The cancer was caught pretty late and neither of us had a lot of money, essentially living paycheck to paycheck so our medical options weren't great. We live in Buffalo, meaning we were just 30 miles too far south for good and affordable medical care and with Elaine unable to work, I made the choice to take on a second job as a nightly garbage collector. It didn't pay great, but beggars can't be choosers. It was at this job, however, that I met Eli Carson. Eli was a wild dude. He was only 30, but he looked easily mid-40s. He had a shaved head with singular rat tails hanging out the back. His eyes were dark green, and his face had a long, thick scar going from his right eyebrow down across the bridge of his nose right down to his left cheek. The craziest thing about him, though, is that he grew up in a cult. A sort of offshoot of the unification movement cult set up by the more eccentric members. He told me he had been a member from birth, and lived in a commune until he was 19, until he escaped. The stories he had from the cult made the night shift go by much quicker, 
but it was once I told him about Elaine's situation that the funny stories turned serious. Due to his cult links, Eli knew some pretty weird and out there people, and he put me on to someone who he said could cure Elaine, 100%. Her name was Madame Arachnia. Eli described her as, The craziest mix of genius and Sacco I've ever met. He said that she worshipped eldritch gods and that she believed H.P. Lovecraft was not a fiction writer, but instead a prophet. However, he promised me that no matter how insane her beliefs were, that nobody else was better equipped to help. I got shot one night while out on a date, and I was set to be on crutches for six months, but she had me walking in no time. He claimed, though I doubted the veracity of the claim. However, Elaine was quickly running out of options, and I couldn't live with myself if we didn't try everything we could. So what if it turned out to be a hoax? It wouldn't change anything about our current situation. Madame Arachnia worked out of a camp deep in a forest at Niagara Gorge. The camp was designed to look like a circus, including a big top tent. Fairy lights hung up all over the camp connecting the multiple tents and teepees that were dispersed throughout. Up in the left corner, just inside the big top, was an animal pen that contained some sheep, goats, cows, and horses. Madame Arachnia's tent was situated at the back of the camp, guarded by two tall men dressed like jesters. However, instead of usual colorful attire, they were all black. They wore a skull mask and a vest made of bone, as well as a coal-black jester's hat with little skull bells that jingled as they walked. Both men carried four black balloons and one white balloon. They led me into the tent which unsurprisingly was illuminated by multiple fairy lights draped across the roof. There was a strong smell of burning sage and lavender incense, and the floor was covered in hay that crunched whenever someone took a step. I had assumed that Madame Arachnia would be an old lady covered in warts, though that turned out to be very wrong. When she pulled down her shawl, she revealed a stunningly beautiful woman with a pale, freckled face, bright yellow eyes, and a tattoo of a black widow spider around her right eye. The sides of her head were shaved with the jet black hair on top done into a quiff with a white streak dyed into it. Each one of her fingers wore a golden covering coated with encrusted gems and she had the letters H and P tattooed on the back of her left and right hands respectively. Samuel, I'm guessing, she said while pulling off her shawl as I approached. Her yellow eyes staring directly into mine as if she was trying to gawk into my soul. That's me, though most people call me Sam. I responded while pulling out the wicker chair from under the table so that I could take a seat. Well, Sam, I understand your dear Elaine has been attacked by a horrible disease. She replied as she picked a small satin black sack off the floor and placed it on the table the glass contents rattling around inside as she did. Yep, stomach cancer. We've tried everything that we could afford, but nothing's worked, and I don't know how long she has left. I explained while biting my lip. I found it hard to discuss these matters with anyone without bursting into tears. 
Madame sat in silence with her fingers crossed for a few seconds to allow me to regain my composure. Once I did, she continued on. Cancer is a horrible thing. To me, it is the greatest evil in our universe. It turns our body against us and kills us slowly from the inside. A truly reprehensible disease. People beg their god to cure them, but more often than not, neither their god nor their doctor can do anything for them. She replied as she put her hand into the sack and began to rummage around inside. However, the old ones would never allow a servant to die such a horrible death. After rummaging around for a bit, she eventually pulled out a glass vial with a cardboard cork at the top. The vial was full of a crimson red substance that swirled around in the glass. Madame Arachnia placed the vial into my hand, then with her hand she closed mine over the vial. She held my hand in between both of hers and looked at me in the eye again. I made this concoction, especially for your Elaine. She should drink this as soon as possible, then rest. It'll clear all her ailments and strengthen her stomach in no time. I'm not sure if it was her confidence, or my desire to want her to be correct, or maybe a mix of both. But at that moment, I completely believed Madame Arachnia. This was going to work. Thank you so much. What do I owe you? I asked her as I pulled an envelope out of my jacket which contained $3,000, my entire savings. Uh, monetary gain means little to me. Elaine's return to health will be of use to my gods. Appeasing them means much more to me than some piece of paper assigned an arbitrary value. Madame Arachnia replied as she lifted her hand up and gestured for me to put the money away. There had been many red flags from my trip to the camp, but this should have been the biggest. Nobody does anything for free, whether they take money or not. In some way, they expect to be rewarded for what they have done. However, at the time, I didn't think about that. I just thought Madame was just some saint doing good acts in the name of some misplaced belief in fictional gods. How wrong I turned out to be. The first four days after Elaine had taken the potion were no different than usual, and I started to believe we had fallen for a stupid hoax. I was angry at myself for falling for such an obviously fake cure, and I was even angrier for having put Elaine through more stress, getting her hopes up again for nothing. On the fifth day, though, things changed for the better. Elaine woke up and seemed to be doing much better. The color had come back to her face and she was full of energy. Her beautiful smile touched each one of her rosy red cheeks in the morning when she woke up to tell me how amazing she felt. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw how great she looked. If it weren't for the weight loss, you wouldn't have believed she was a cancer patient. However, the good feelings didn't last as she immediately threw up when she ate some toast that I had made for her. We were both shocked when she threw up, and I could tell how much effort Elaine was putting in to stop herself from exploding into tears. It had seemed that we found a cure, but after she threw up, it became apparent it had only been a placebo. Except it wasn't. We decided to go to the doctor for a checkup, hoping that the potion may have fought back some of the cancer. 
Not enough to return Elaine's appetite, but enough to give her back some energy and to give us a fighting chance. However, when the test results came back, the doctors were dumbfounded. The cancer was completely gone. There was no trace at all. The doctors couldn't believe their eyes. Elaine sat in silent shock upon hearing the news, only coming out of it when I threw my arms over her. I'm alive, she said before beginning to cry as I held her tight in my arms. The doctors informed us that Elaine throwing up when eating was most likely just her body getting used to regular food again, and that it would soon return. They told us to ensure that she only ate small portions and soup for the time being, which is all she could usually stomach when she was sick. However, over the next few days she couldn't even stomach that. Four days had passed and she got the all clear and she couldn't even eat some toast and soup. The rest of her body had been cured, but it seemed like her stomach had deteriorated. I decided I need to meet with Madame Arachne again. If anyone had the answer, she would. I just wish it wasn't the answer she gave. When I reached the camp, I was once again greeted by the creepy jesters who walked me into Madame's tent once more. I explained to her that the potion had worked, but Elaine couldn't eat no matter what we tried. Her response to this took my own appetite away from me. Well, of course she can't eat. You're not feeding her the right meat. She said as she placed some tarot cards face down on the table, keeping her eyes focused on them as she spoke to me. Well, you never told me that there was food she couldn't eat. What can she eat? I replied, expecting to get an answer like horse or rat. However, the answer was much, much worse. Humans. She replied as she lifted her head to finally look at me and grin. My heart sank into my stomach upon hearing this, and I began to sweat profusely before lashing out in anger. Don't joke with me! I screamed as I jumped up from my seat and lashed a closed fist against the table, causing the tarot cards to fly off the table and onto the floor. Both of the gestures took a step forward preparing to attack me, but Madame ordered them to step back before beckoning me to retake my seat. Sit down and relax, Sam. I'm not joking. My potions aren't a miracle. They cure, but they need something in return. In this case, Elaine's stomach has been modified to fight off all infections and diseases, but in return, she can only eat her fellow humans. She explained as she reached her right hand out and called for one of the gestures who then carried over a lunchbox and placed it on the table opening it up to reveal a liver. This is a human liver. Take it home and cook it for about six minutes on each side, then serve it. It'll be the tastiest meal Elaine has ever had. And once she has had the taste for human meat, She'll never want to go back. <laughs> Not that she has a choice. Arachnia said before starting to chuckle, as she placed the top back on the box and slid it across the table to me. The anger I felt before quadrupled as I sat there being mocked. However, I took a few deep breaths and composed myself knowing that Madame's two goons might not be held back by her a second time if I lost it again. 
And how do I know this is a human liver? This could easily just be a liver from one of your animals. I want you to stop playing around with me and give me a proper answer. Stop this frustrating joke, please. I calmly replied as I sat back in my seat and crossed my arms. Madam didn't immediately respond. Instead, she turned her head to look at the gesture to the left of her and nodded to him. Once she did, he walked away to the back of the tent, coming back a moment later with a plastic bag slung over his shoulder. He walked up to the table and dropped the bag directly onto it. The full weight of the bag hit the tabletop with a loud thud before a head rolled out from it. A human head. Ah! Once the head rolled out, I leapt from my seat and screamed before the gesture put both hands on my shoulder and forced me back down into the chair, ordering me to sit now with a hoarse voice. We don't do jokes around here, Samuel. If I say something, I mean it. Madame Arachnia said with a serious tone, though I was no longer looking at her. My eyes were transfixed onto the detached head sitting on the table in front of me. The head looked to have belonged to an older man in either his 40s or 50s going off his wrinkled face and long grey hair with some spots of bald dispersed throughout. His facial expression was one of immense pain and his eyes had been gouged out. I started to wonder what this man had done to earn such a fate, but that mattered little to me. What did matter, however? was how dangerous Madame Arachnia was. My right leg twitched uncontrollably underneath the table as she spoke, fearing that I may face the same fate as this man. Now, take that lunchbox. Leave this camp and never dare return. The boys will see you out. Madame Arachnia said as the gestures approached me and lifted me out of the chair. One of them handed me the lunchbox before both walked me out of the camp and back to civilization. When I got home, I cooked the liver just as Madame had told me to, and just as she predicted, Elaine loved it, but more importantly, she was able to keep it down. I waited until the next day to see if she was able to keep it all down before sitting her down and explaining to her that she had consumed a man's liver. At first she thought it was a joke, but once I assured her it wasn't, she understandably slapped me across the face and then stormed off, leaving me alone with a deep red handshake mark on my face. She didn't return until later that night, but when she did, she was much calmer than when she left. It was that night that we accepted we only had two choices going forward. We could either do what needed to be done, or allow Elaine to starve. The latter was never an option. And there was no plan B, so it was obvious we would need to kill to keep Elaine alive. I said that I would do it as I had gotten us into this mess. We are, or should I say we were, both pretty non-violent people, so just jumping straight into murdering people wasn't easy. We knew we couldn't just kill anyone. Elaine decided that we should choose certain people. People who deserved to die. So, that explains why I'm sitting in a parking lot across from a 24-hour gym at 1am, waiting for the right person to leave. The right person was Jack Werther, a 33-year-old man and fitness aficionado. 
he needed to keep himself in top shape to impress the ladies. But when I say ladies, I should really say girls. Young girls. Jack usually likes them between 13 and 16, and he was into some pretty weird stuff. I know this because Jack has been texting back and forth with Elaine for the last three weeks, though he thinks she's a 14-year-old girl. I've done this a few times now, so you might assume I was getting used to it, but if I'm being honest, I dread doing this every time. I struggle to sleep for days once I notice that meat is running low, though I thankfully don't have to do this too often. A whole human lasts pretty long, but not as long as you'd hope, since it's all a lane can eat. Most of the body can be used, bar the head, hands, and feet, which she struggles to eat except the eyes, which she enjoys blended up in a smoothie. I had wished Elaine would have picked a weaker, less fitness-loving meal, but we gotta take what we can get. And it's hard to survive multiple shots to the head from a hammer, no matter how strong and fit you are. I had to sit and wait for Jack for over two hours. During that time, my usual feelings of fear anxiousness and paranoia subsided as I tried to focus on even staying awake. However, Jack eventually left the gym and briskly walked up the quiet, empty street into the darkness. Once I saw him leave, I grabbed the hammer out of my bag and followed after him. Time for dinner. Does anyone remember this story? by Sleepy Hollow 101. I read this story on some horror forum online. God, it must have been 10 years ago now, maybe more. It always stuck with me, I don't know why. It wasn't particularly well written, and the concept has been done to death. But even now, all these years later, I'll catch myself thinking about it, or I'll see a picture on the wall and I'll remember. The story went something like this. A guy moves into a house. It's old, has a lot of history, he gets it cheap. So he gets settled in. Everything is perfect. And then a few weeks later, he discovers there's a woman in one of the paintings on the walls. A woman who wasn't there before. It's a landscape painting. She's wearing some sort of old-fashioned clothing. Maybe Victorian? Probably Victorian. That's how all these stories go. She's got long black hair and pale skin and deep, staring eyes. Looking at her sort of creeps him out. He thinks he just hadn't noticed her before. Tries to write it off as the fallibility of the human brain. But then she shows up in another painting. And then in family photos. He starts seeing her in the background. It gets worse when she starts showing up in mirrors. And now the guy's hearing creaks and bumps in the night. Feels like he's being watched. Sees things out of place that he can't account for. Finally, he wakes up one day, walks downstairs, and finds images of the woman sketched over every square inch of the walls, and every drawing seems to stare directly at him. It was one of those stories that had a picture with it. It was supposedly one of the walls with the woman sketched over and over on it. The sketching wasn't very good, but there was something unsettling about the picture all the same. Like I said, not the best one out there. We never find out who the woman is or why she's tormenting the poor narrator. We don't know why she suddenly appears on the walls. There's no resolution, 
and the climax leaves something to be desired. And yet, I tried to find the story again, but I never could. Maybe the author deleted it? I wish they hadn't. I'd like to see that picture again. A few weeks ago, my mom asked my help in going through some of Great Grandma's things. We come from a family of pack rats with a strong interest in genealogy, meaning that throughout generations, we've kept in recorded just about everything, squirreling it away to sit untouched in our attics. My mom inherited a lot of these artifacts of her family history from her mother, and since I'm the only one of his children who's shown an interest in her ancestry, I'll inherit them after she dies. So it was in my interest to help her sort through great-grandma's things, and maybe convince her to get rid of some of the more damaged items if I could. We ended up bringing her photo albums downstairs, and spent part of the afternoon just paging through them, mom pointing out the people she knew, which was most of them. And then we came to this one picture. It wasn't in a sleeve. It had been just tucked between two random pages. It was an old black and white Polaroid of a woman in a long dress. She was staring impassively at the camera. Her mouth twisted into a slight frown. She had this beautiful long hair and piercing eyes. Her hands were folded in front of her. And something about her just felt familiar. I asked my mom who she was, but she couldn't place her. There wasn't anything written on the back of the photo to give us a clue. The last time my mom had looked at the album had been years. Over a decade, maybe more. She didn't recall ever having seen the picture. Couldn't imagine she would have left it there, out of place as it was. I asked her if I could take it with me, on a whim, and she agreed. I couldn't get that strange sense of familiarity out of my head. It wasn't until I'd gotten all the way home and through my front door that it hit me. She looked like the woman in the story. Obviously, there hadn't been any good pictures of the woman in the story, just drawings. What I mean is that she looked exactly like I'd imagined her. Down to the curved wave in her hair and the placement of her hands. That's when I remembered another detail of the story that I'd long forgotten. The woman had her hands clasped in front of her in every picture. But in the drawings on the walls, she was reaching out as if to grab the narrator. I called my mom and told her about the story in the picture. I could tell she thought I was reading too much into things. She's a pretty practical and skeptical person. She did agree to go through Great Grandma's writings and papers to see if she could figure out who the woman could be. The next time I spoke to her was at my brother Nathan's memorial. It was just a few days after we found the picture. Ten years ago, Nathan was found in his home, his throat cut. He was only 34. Although the police investigation into his death picked up momentum almost immediately, nobody was ever charged for the crime. Our family has thoughts on who might have done it, but we've never been able to prove anything. We probably never will. Each year on the anniversary of his death, we have a little family gathering to remember and mourn. So we were at Mom's house, looking through old pictures of my brother and remembering. Mom had already told me that she hadn't found any information on the picture we'd found days before. It was about what I expected. I had decided to just stow the picture away and forget about it when I came across this certain picture of my brother. 
It was from his housewarming party, taken just a few months before his death. He was standing with his arm around me, and we were both making these stupid faces at the camera. I've looked at that photo thousands of times by now, but this was the first time I really noticed the painting in the background. It was a landscape painting, showing rolling hills dotted with trees, and there, standing next to one of the trees was a figure. I had to squint to make it out, but it looked like a person. A woman. I was distracted for the rest of the memorial. I took the pictures with me when I went home, and I just sat there and stared at it, wishing I could see the painting a little better. With that story on my mind and the picture Mom and I had found, it was hard not to connect the dots, even though I was half convinced the dots I was connecting didn't actually exist. Clearly I was reading too much into it. Nathan's death was hard on me, and I'm always a little off around the anniversary. I was seeing things that weren't there as a way of coping with the fact that my big brother's murderer will probably never face the justice for what he did. I put both of the pictures in my bedside drawer and decided to leave well enough alone. Maybe another day when I was feeling more like myself, I'd look at them again. Maybe. Weeks passed by and gradually my uneasiness faded. It became easier to see it was all as a product of my imagination. I've always been the imaginative sort anyway. And then, yesterday. I got up to get dressed for work and walked into the bathroom. As I passed by the mirror, I saw someone else was standing in there with me. A woman with dark, wavy hair and piercing eyes, her hands folded primly in front of her. I whirled around only to find myself alone. When I turned back to the mirror, her image was gone. It was her. I'm sure it was her. I haven't stopped thinking about her since then. Or that story. Was it a story? Did I get all the details right? Maybe she showed up in the mirror first. Was that it? What exactly happened after that? The story ended with her image scrawled all over the walls. But what came after that? Did the person ever write an update? I need to find the author. I need to know if it was who I think it was, and if so, why he didn't tell me what was going on. Is it somewhere in his journals? If you remember this story, please help me find it. Something terrible is about to happen. It's already happening to me, and I need answers. And I'm afraid the only one who could give them to me is dead. If these tales were to your liking, please like the video and leave a comment. I also recommend ringing the bell if you just can't bear to miss one of my stories. I'm trying out this thing you people call selling. I put my face on this ceramic cylinder. If this interests you somehow, then please feel free to click the link below and send me your arbitrary amount of digital currency. If watching a video is beneath you, I do also upload my stories to the Silver Threads podcast. If there's a story you feel I must read, then send it to storiesforsilverthreads at gmail.com, and I may take a gander. Thank you all for listening, 
and I'll see you next time with another story.